0: This week on the Back Table Podcast. So we give him the device, and he puts it. You know, it's a he's going to do an SMA angiogram. Just going to do, put the device in and do an angiogram. At this point, Jim is in Colorado. I'm sort of calling him intermittently from Australia. You know, it's probably like two in the morning where he was, ten in the morning in Australian time, and and you know he's nervous. Everyone's nervous. How's this going to go? What's going to happen? You know, Dave Lew's there. You know, very curious to see uh what's going to happen so he gets the device he puts it in and lawrence i remember i to his face i remember to this his face he looks at me and he says i can't see it
1: oh my gosh like what it's radiolucent yeah <laughs> oh no
0: it was complete
1: there's no well, markers
0: well exactly what happened is i had done all this animal studies in swine Oh, plain, or you know, I forget, or just they're very narrow, yeah, very narrow, you know, there. And you could see every detail with the spine, and then you put it in a human being with you know, it disappears ate, it disappears completely. Oh my
1: gosh. Hey, everyone, and welcome to the back table podcast, your source for all things endovascular and interventional. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and on Backtable.com. This is Brian Hartley as your host this week. I'm a radiologist living in Silicon Valley and also co-founder of an early-stage medical device company in the pulmonary space. I am very excited for our special guest today, Dr. Arvin Arapali. This is our next installment in the Backtable Innovation Series, where you will hear stories from physician entrepreneurs who are helping to shape the endovascular field through devices. Before we dive into our topic today, just want to say a quick word from our sponsor, RadPad. RadPad radiation protection products, developed by physicians for physicians and clinically proven to protect during CINE and digital subtraction angiography. Don't bet your health on anything less. Trust RadPad Protection for all your interventions. See RadPad.com for more information and contact info at RadPad.com to learn more about radiation safety CME credits for you and your team. So with that, I would like to introduce Arvind Arapalli, a world-renowned interventional radiologist, innovator, and medical device developer. Arvind has done extensive work in the embolic space and is co-founder of Surefire Medical, now known as Trisalis, a leading pressure-directed therapy device uh, a company designed for interventional oncology procedures. Welcome to Arvind. Welcome, Brian. Thanks. Thanks. Yeah. So really glad to have you here. So we'd love to just start off with, you know, hearing a little bit uh, about yourself. Sure. My name is Arvind Arpali.
0: I uh, live in Atlanta, Georgia. I'm originally from Georgia itself. I'm a practicing interventional radiologist. I work at Piedmont Healthcare, part of a private, large private uh, practice group called Radiology Associates of Atlanta. Um, I practice predominantly liver-based therapies. We're a big transplant center, one of the biggest ones, I think, in the country, especially for a private group. And
1: uh, pretty robust practice with both diagnostic and, and interventional radiology. Mm. So, what's your case mix in terms of a diagnostic and IR? I would say it's mostly ninety percent IR, ten percent diagnostic,
0: and with interventional, I pretty much mostly the liver-related procedures, because that's pretty much the brunt of our patient volume. We are starting to pick up some early prostate artery embolization. We also have some dialysis
1: volumes, but mostly I would say it's uh, liver directed work. Wow. Okay. Uh, and so looking at the past a little bit, tell us, how did you get to interventional radiology? What inspired you to do that? And maybe some of the mentors along the way that that helped you through it? Sure. I think, you know, I would have to probably
0: say the thing that really got me interested to begin, I'd have to go back all the way till I would say high school in the sense that my parents, both my parents were physicians and they were really, they were immigrants that came from India. And I remember as a, as a young child, my mom was, you know, she was, she was in residency. She had to redo her residency. My dad didn't have a residency, so he was unemployed. And my mom was working in Philadelphia and I remember how hard she worked. She would basically get up at three thirty in the morning, cook a meal. F- so the kids would have dinner and then go to work around five and then take call. And then wow. so we'd at least have a meal on the table. So it's like those kind of things. I remember how hard she worked and she sort of inspired me with, with both my parents with their dedication. But the other cool thing is I think, you know, I grew up in a small town called Vidalia, Georgia, and that's where. She was an OBGYN and you can't do this now. But when I was in high school, I remember my mom would let me scrub in with her. Oh, my gosh. And I would be doing, you know, hysterectomies with her, you know. You're kidding. No. And it was just, you know, she's like, this is this. And she'd show me the anatomy and she'd show me what to do, all these other things. So it was like a very early experience that you just can't get that now. And, you know, it's a small town, you know, she was, you know, there was one, two ORs in the whole hospital. And you could just do, you know, the, it was, you you have a very immersive experience with that. So,
1: Wow. Any I specifics, think, any specific things you remember from that? Because that's a very unique experience for yeah, no, that young.
0: Yeah, no, I just remember how respected my mom was in the mm-hmm. OR. She was very gifted in the OR. And I just remembered how calm, collected she was. And that was just, you know, you don't know anything in high school, obviously. You don't really. But just to having, being able to be with her, she's doing her, her craft, her work was just imprinted on me pretty significantly. And, and also seeing like, she was the only OBGY in town. And I never, you know, when you're growing up, you don't take this account, but she was on call every night mm-hmm. and she just never complained. She did it and then would go to the grocery store and I'd see all these people coming up to her saying, oh, you delivered my son or my daughter. And this is, so it was very cool. And then, That's special. So those were all special, you know, imprints on me. No, that's fantastic. Did you deliver any babies or help her with No, 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 it was just surgery. Okay, like either pelvic or, you know, GYN
1: surgery, but yeah, gotcha. nothing like that. Wow. Uh, that's that's fantastic. That's a great story. That's so, Yeah, go ahead.
0: I was going to say later
1: on, I think what happened
0: is I went to med school and I didn't really know what I wanted to do. And ironically, I didn't want to do GYN. I, I rotated and I was sort of like one of these, Fourth year students. I was sort of meandering. Didn't have an idea. I think I wanted to do surgery, but didn't. I didn't want to do medicine. You know, it was one of those situations. And I remember I had to do my mandatory radiology elective, and, and so I go in there, and and at that point in uh, the radiology elective was very was not well organized. And it was at Emory. You go in and you basically sit in the back room, and then you watch someone read read out with someone else. And I was just like, nah, Oh my gosh. Stay. <laughs> and then the lectures, there was always a lecture at seven in the morning, I remember. And I, you know, seven in the morning, and then you'd have someone up there talking about chest x-rays in the dark, and ha- half the time I fell asleep. And then one day, uh, this guy came comes in the room, and he turns on the lights. He goes, all right. His name was Alan Zuckerman, and he was the head of IR at Emory at that point. He said, I just want to, I'm not going to show you cases. I'm just going to show you some devices. And he literally had a box, and he just opened the box and he spilled it on the table in front of everybody. And he says, come over here. And immediately my eyes just like went wide and uh, my jaw dropped. And I was like, oh my gosh. (laughs) And it was like, I I knew this was it. It was like getting a candy store. Yeah, exactly. I was like, this is exactly what I've been looking for. I mean, and he went through all the clinical scenarios. And then from that on, I was hooked and uh, I would always be, Whenever, whatever rotation I was, I always ended up somehow being on IR, either scrubbing in or just uh, talking to everybody. So for me, it was just a very natural fit. And thankfully, you know, it happened during a rotation uh, randomly. It was not
1: something calculated. So, and it worked out well. That's fantastic. I think, yeah, there isn't, at least before, there really isn't a ton of exposure to interventional radiology. And it always seems, I don't know, the story you described, the not a dissimilar experience for me is. Uh, it's almost as if they're trying to get people not to want to go into diagnostic radiology. Uh, I don't know. It's like, let's learn about a chest X-ray and people reading in the dark and how boring it is. And, it, you know, it, it, it's interesting that anybody goes into it. It's <laughs>
0: it, it really is. And it's I think, you know, at least now it feels like there's so much more awareness, whether it's through social media or through SIR outreach programs, it's better. But, but back then it was just horrendous. I mean, it was just, it was just random luck if you, if you got
1: exposed to it. Mm. Crazy. And then, so that was in residency and correct. Is, is that correct? Or, yeah. or, or med school, excuse me, that was in med school. And then you went to residency also at Emory? Is that I correct? went to residency at Emory. And then right. afterwards I, and
0: I think this is sort of a, a theme in my Life is. I intentionally decided to to go somewhere else for my fellowship. I wanted Mm -hmm. to get a completely different perspective. So then I went to Hopkins for my interventional fellowship. Okay, Uh, and then from there
1: stayed on as faculty for about eight years. Okay, tell us a little bit about that time. I did. uh, You were director of the Center for Bioengineering Innovation and Design, but maybe before that, when did you start getting into devices? I know the you mentioned that great story about dumping the box. Yeah. of devices. But what happened next that kind of, what was the next level? What was the next spark? Sure. Uh, I think, th- you know, there's a couple of sparks
0: for me. You know, I was doing clinical work and that was fine everything else, but I just wanted to do more. Mm-hmm. And I remember I started collaborating. Um, one of the things about Hopkins is the research infrastructure is phenomenal. There's just, there's nothing in the world like it. And I saw intentionally started doing more collaboration with people in the MR research division. Now, this has, you would think, has nothing to do with interventional radiology. This is MR research, a lot of basic scientists looking at spectroscopy or looking at, you know, Fourier analysis with the reconstruction, how fast do you make the MRI. But this group, uh, and I realized the reason why I went to this group is, one, they were pretty much the foremost high intense researchers in the world at Hopkins and and radiology. And I wanted to be exposed to some just really high level research. And so I started hanging out with them and I started doing MR guided interventions. And there, that's where when the spark came, where they really pushed me to just think about bigger ideas, pushed me to think about creative ideas. Uh, The people I was surrounded by, really smart people, collaborative people, some of the most collaborative people I've ever worked with. Very supportive, and that really sort of helped me. uh, I would say give me my foundations of research skills, and in the sense that I learned how to write grants, how to write papers, I learned how to do presentations. It's something that unfortunately you don't get taught any of these things along the way when you go into academics. And in fact, I remember even they made me take a course on grant writing, and uh, one time, and not made me, but they suggested it. They said, "Hey, this will help." And again, I had really good uh, collaborators and I took this grant writing course and it was mind-blowingly good. And I was like, I cannot believe that people don't get this, you Mm know, the minute they start academics because it really teaches you a perspective. And so hanging out with the MR Research Division really helped me with that. But then at that point, by doing that, I met more engineers. I met more people in the engineering school. So it really broadened my base. And I would say, the research with the MR research was like creating my foundation and my network of people. And that really helped me move along. And I would say another, another time that sort of inspired me to even go even further, and this is sort of uh, another crazy story, but I remember one time I was collaborating with a engineer. His name is Perry Kamarker. And he and I designed a lot of MR guided needles that you can visualize and you can track and everything else. But he was also the kind that just would, he's always up for trying something. And so I remember one day I was in my office working on my paper and he, and he, and I, you know, and I was writing a grant or something. And he said, what are you doing today? I said, "Uh, we're working. He's like, he goes, you want to go with me to DC? There is a space conference, privatization of space. Interesting. I was like, Yes, let's go. When was this, did you say? This was in 2005 or six. Okay. So this is very early on and they had in Washington, D.C., they had a, a space conference where they basically were trying to uh basically innovate the private industry for space, you know, be, whether it's a space travel or space tourism
1: or anything related to space. I know somebody who is into that. <laughs> okay. can you? Oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs>
0: And so I go to this conference thinking, okay, I'm just going to go just to, and this is again, shows me how you, when you want to display yourself in a completely different new environment, it can have a huge impact on your life or your uh, trajectory. So I'm going to this conference, I'm walking around looking at all these, you know, booths, which is very cool. And back then it was so small, so primitive. I'm sure now it's very, very advanced. And the keynote speaker at that time, that day, was Bert Rutan. And this is before he became really, I mean, he's already was famous, but not as infamous as he is now. But, and he gave a talk and he talked about how, you know, how he had put more spacecraft into space the last two years than NASA had done in the last 20 years. And I remember he he made a couple of comments, which really resonated with me. One was he said people at NASA he called them, they're turning tricks. A lot of people, what they do is they basically churn through projects to get more grant money. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, I saw that also in academics. I felt like people a lot of times were just turning tricks. And he, and he really said, you really need to shoot for big projects, really big, impactful projects. And don't think of just doing incremental projects. And he was very, you know, um, influential in my thinking at that point. And so that's, after that, m- listen to that talk and I remember talking to Perry, I said, Perry, we got to really start thinking about bigger projects. And that's when I started, you know, playing around with obesity. I was like, you know, I'm gonna just start work on ideas. It may be crazy, but I'm gonna work on ideas that are not traditional projects that people have not worked in, uh, more of the blue ocean strategy. And that's sort of how I sort of approached my career in trying to, you know, displace myself into new environments, maybe get some new insight input and from there, you know, uh, try new projects, and that's sort of how. From there, I started doing bariatric embolization. That Harry and I started working on other projects, and then with that, we started really collaborating with a lot of engineers, with especially in the biomedical engineering school at Hopkins. And so
1: that's sort of yeah. the evolution of my, I guess, my career at Hopkins. No, oh, that's fantastic. You know, I always say I was thinking Elon Musk when you were talking about the privatization of space travel, um, but. You mentioned a couple of things, uh, principles really, that several other innovators have have mentioned to me before. Hanson Gifford, who is, uh, he's one of the co-founders of the Foundry, the most successful mm-hmm. incubator, device incubator in the world based out of here. And Josh Macauer, also another big time innovator. He has the ExplorerMed Foundry. They both have told me that you need to, and all of us, we were at Stanford Biodesign, you have to think big. And that was uh, a turning point for me when they say something like that. They're not, they're thinking attack stroke, you know, thinking these big areas that you can make a large impact. Yes. Because even if you miss your target, you're still going to hit something that's impactful. And I think, or at least that's the way I have looked at it. You exactly. know, when, I was, when I was starting at, at Vanderbilt, where, you know, you and I met through Reed Omery, but I was working on a device uh, a new needle a new biopsy needle on for ct guided biopsy and i've mentioned this before but looking back i'm like the the impact of that is going to be relatively small it was interesting to work on and i learned a lot but now that my eyes are a little bit i think my vision is broadened a little bit And I think it's great advice to say, you know, don't be afraid to think big and and attack big problems or blue ocean problems. Blue ocean meaning where there are very few competitors, where there really aren't any devices that that have been in that area. Exactly. I mean, that's that's so critical. I mean, because and the problem is
0: sometimes we end up getting tunnel vision with our areas and what we think is a big project problem may not necessarily be a problem, a big problem. So It's really important to expand your horizon and expand your input and
1: get uh, ideas from other people. And, you know, you mentioned your engineer, his name was Perry, I believe you said. And one other thing that kind of sparked my uh, thoughts was you said he was always up for trying new things. He was always, he's the guy who always said yes to things or, and I think that is so important that, well, first off, developing devices is a part, it's a team sport. You, You can't really do this on your own, at least from what I've seen. Yeah. Uh, maybe you can have somebody who's a jack of all trades, but having a partner who will build upon ideas. There are too many people that will hear an idea and be like, oh, that's not a good idea or oh, that'll never work. Those people can be really tough to 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 innovate yeah. around or to to allow the space for creativity. Yes. Uh, and it sounds like that's kind of a, a, the experience you had.
0: That's true. I mean, I also you know, it, it, I've I've talked about this also in general with other with former fellow with fellows and uh, residents, but I I find like there's in life and it's not even about innovation, but in life there are people that give you energy and there are people that take energy mm-hmm. away from you. And like classic Perry, Reed, Omri people that are surrounded, mm-hmm. they are the people that kind of give me energy and they're always willing to listen. They're always willing to try or they're, there's not, it's the, the no word is not part of their vocabulary. They're always willing to, but they're also willing to challenge me too. They're mm-hmm. like, you know, I mean, For the longest time, I mean, these are some of the crazy ideas that Perry and I have had. I mean, one time we were sitting there working on the schematics and designing a MRI machine for space. You know, I mean, it's just, you know, it's crazy, but at the same time, is that, but those are the kind of exercises that we need to do mentally or, you know, absolutely. You know, it leads, sure, they don't go anywhere, but at the same time, is they sort of create these collaborations and create,
1: you know, it, it, it's like kindling fires. It's just, it totally, that's why, that's why I feel about it. Kindling fire. I like that one, but it is, it's creating the space so that, I mean, maybe you aren't going to do anything in that area, but it definitely stretched your, your, your intellectual muscles and your creative muscles that maybe pushed you in other areas, such as, you know, when you were developing Surefire, yeah. when you were working on Surefire. But before we get there, you know, I, I, you've had some good, ex- interesting experiences when did you start working on bariatric embolization? So I started working bariatric embolization around 2006,
0: right after that Bert Rutan lecture. That's when I started doing the research and started really trying to dive into obesity, trying to dive into all the minimally invasive procedures. And that's when I started realizing, you know, I remember there were a couple of key papers that came out in New England Journal, as well as other publications where they showed that there's a high concentration of ghrelin within the the gastric fundus. Mm-hmm. And I remember that there were people trying to modulate ghrelin levels to sort of, you know, impact the, the appetite and suppress appetite, all these other, you know, so there was all these pharmacological uh, methods people were using. And I remember, you know, obviously with interventional radiology, I'm like, well, the, ga- the gastric fundus is something there's a conduit for us, which is the left gastric artery. Mm-hmm. And that's when I started, I had grant money from other areas and I sort of started and putting, I started putting in money in I mean, I started applying for grants for this mm-hmm. and got some funding and a lot, to be honest, a lot of people were, you know, is always saying this is crazy, but that's, that's fine. And there you go. Barry and I started playing around with it. And then I had, you know, various other uh, papers come out from it and showing that we could suppress ghrelin level by doing some bland embolization. I went through all kinds of embolic agents. So it was not, you know, it wasn't straight. It wasn't easy, but at the same time as I, I, the experience I had from the MR research division on writing grants, writing papers, uh, hypothesis-driven research. These are all things that sort of helped me craft the the basic basic science for this work. And that was, you know, that w- that was a lot of fun to try to sort out, tease it, and then we actually were able to take it from concept, preclinical. And basically, and did some clinical trials and we're still on that clinical trial side of that, but it's, you know, that's the things I feel like I'm proudest of is I took an idea purely from a concept Mm -hmm. and did the, the, the research, the basic science, the preclinical and the clinical aspect of it and carried it through. And that in itself, even though, like, even if you don't have a, a let's say the trials don't completely come out successful to me it's a success because I went through the entire uh,
1: exercise of doing it correctly properly and trying to vet out what works and what does not work. Absolutely I mean uh, not everything's going to be a grand slam but you know do it safely and explore new concepts and I think this one makes a lot of sense and the, the trials are still ongoing is that correct is that the the BEAT trial? Yes exactly the BEAT obesity
0: trial basically barrier uh of the arteries to treat uh, obesity basically yes so that's where we are we're still are. Uh, we're the part of our struggle right now is getting funding for the trial we're working mm-hmm. on different mechanisms Cliff weiss at hopkins is spearheading it now from that from my standpoint i just don't have the bandwidth for all the mm-hmm. clinical work to do that but cliff is sort of spearheading at that but yeah there's a funding uh, mechanism we're looking at and
1: to sort of expand it very cool and and uh, in 2007, you were in, you were in Germany, is that right? Uh, what was that all about? You were working with Siemens. How did, how did that come about? I would say that was a very pivotal uh, point in my career. And
0: I think, it's funny, I think other, I was listening to your podcast with Mike Dake and I mm-hmm. remember he went to Italy. I kind of feel like it's, for me, it was the same thing. At that point, I was working in the MR Research Division and the opportunity came for me to do a sabbatical in Germany with Siemens in Erlangen, which is in uh, Bavaria. And I took, the, took them up on it. It was basically a four month sabbatical from my practice. And I went there and I, to be honest, Brian, it was probably one of the best times of my life. I mean, with my daughter was two years old. We lived in this tiny little apartment where we converted our, the one bedroom to her bed, to made her bedroom. And we converted the living room to a bedroom. We mm. basically I had, you know, when I got there, Siemens gave me a, an apartment in Erlangen, which is a old university town in Europe, gave me a bike, and then they gave me an Audi. Wow. (laughs) But I barely used the car because I walked or biked to work every day. We were across basically two blocks from the train station. So we could go, we were in central Europe, so we can go anywhere in Europe within two or three hours, so easily. And I work with the MR engineers at Siemens. I traveled around Europe. I met a lot of interventional radiologists in Europe, got to see, to talk to uh, a lot of MR guided intervention. So really for me, it was nice because it pulled me out of my current environment, expanded my horizon significantly, got to meet all, all kinds of cool people and learn and also learn about industry you know that's something I was lacking too um I sort of you know the Siemens people were very very generous in the sense that I didn't speak German they spoke English and German so a lot of meetings normally they do doing German they did it in English for me I got to present to the uh, the board at Siemens I got to go through a lot of interesting meetings and giving them some input on other imaging equipment so it was, it was a very fast four months, but it was also
1: extremely enriching for me. I just learned a ton, and also we had a great time living in Europe. Oh, that's fantastic. It, it, it does seem like making, sometimes making big changes like that can open your mind to other possibilities. Yes. Um, they, can, they can be pivotal. So you left Hopkins in 2008? Yes. Or around then, and you went to Atlanta, and that was to a predominantly private practice, is that correct? Correct. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and that's where you are still today. So I have to ask, how did you keep up with? You're an innovator. How did you keep up with innovation and do and do private practice? I know there can be a lot of demands. There are a lot of demands in any practice. You know, for me, I think part of the reason why I left academics, I wanted to put myself in a totally different environment. Mm-hmm. I mean,
0: and I feel like this is sort of a, a, a recurrent theme in my life. But but just being in a completely different environment, in, for for me. It, it cre- gets the creative juices going. It allowed me to reframe everything. It allowed me to look at different challenges and see what the problems are. And innovation to me is is more of a mindset. So like academics is a mindset. You can, as long as you have the right time, you right ability and time and surround yourself with the right people. And so as soon as I got to Atlanta, I really started surrounding myself with, you know, trying to find the infrastructure that was available in Atlanta. There's a, there's a global center for medical innovation, which is a, at that point, a very early stage medical device group mm-hmm. I met with the other, you know, innovators around the city. So I just try to and Georgia Tech also has a phenomenal infrastructure. So. I basically reached out trying to find different people. And at the same time, I wanted to sort of put myself in a different environment to sort of, you know, to get my creative juices going. Um, Mm -hmm. The other thing is, you know, when I a lot of physicians talk to me about starting companies or devices, one of the things you need more than money is really time. Mm -hmm. And that's probably the most, that's your biggest enemy, time. And I remember at that point when I joined Piedmont, we were actually, we had a lot of good time available and it was also more like flex time in the sense that I could work as much as I wanted and have, you know, you could buy your time off as you want. So it was not a rigid schedule, which was Mm -hmm. nice. It was more of a flexible schedule and that worked for me. And I've already, the good thing is I already had, as I said, the, the basic foundations at Hopkins and the MR Research Division. Of writing grants, of writing papers, and doing research, so I felt comfortable doing all that stuff. And I think this was more of trying to balance my family life, my clinical practice, and my academic
1: time. So, give me give me an example. Are you were you working three days a week? Uh, how, how was it? You know, yeah, it it, di- it differ. I mean, week to week, it some days three
0: days, some days four week four days, some weeks. Yeah, exactly. Sorry, some weeks. Yeah, at mm-hmm. time, so it, it varied, and you know you also, you use your weekends, you Mm. other, you know, other times. So evening times, especially when you're starting a company, it's going to be a lot of evening times, a lot of weekend times, a lot of, you know, absolutely. No matter what, whether you're in academics or whether you're in private practice, you know, it's, it's, it takes a lot of energy. It's what, it's a lot of fun and it's extremely satisfying, but at the Mm. same time is people, I think totally underestimate the amount of time it takes. And Mm. I had, uh, Funny one that I worked with a startup at when I was in the MR research division, and the CEO of that startup was named was Kim Jenkins. He's over in uh, Memphis. And when I started up with Jim Surefire, he's the one that told me same thing. He goes, Arvin, he goes, time is your most important asset you have right now. You know, when you don't have money, you you haven't raised any money. You have to figure out how to optimize the use of your
1: time. So because if you don't do it right, you'll you know you'll you'll fall apart. That's too true. And with that, I think that's a great segue. I'd love to hear about the origin story of Surefire. Who were you with? How how did you come up with the idea? What was the clinical need behind the idea?
0: So I think we can say the origin of Surefire can really, can boil down to a book uh, that we would, I would recommend to anyone and you probably know about it. It's the uh, biodesign book from. Oh, yes. and Josh Meikauer. Basically. We follow that approach. So Jim Chomas is, and as you said, it it really is a team sport. It's not an individual situation. But the way we started, Jim Chomas and I, Jim was at the foundry. He was worked with a startup company called Cabochon. He had left in the Bay Area and he wanted to start a company. We met through a mutual friend of mine in the MR Research Division. His name is Wes Gilson, who happened to be Jim's grad school roommate. So anyway, Jim and I met and we actually approached it through the bio-design approach, which is basically try to find the clinical need, go through the process, and really we followed it to the T. And when we did this, and actually about a year after we did this, I actually emailed Paul Yacht and thanked him and let him know how how appreciative it was because it really was very helpful. because. And I tell this that I tell people all the time is, and this is one of the books to get is if you're going to do something from startling this, the biodesign approach is really helpful. I mean, you just sit down, you go through the clinical needs, you write down all the clinical needs, you Mm -hmm. go through the process and it's, it's a. so, uh, as you well know, Brian, it's a well-organized process. It provides structure to something that can easily devolve without structure. So, something
1: that's uh, what you would normally think is amorphous—you yes. know—is—is is innovation. It's the light bulb that goes off when you're in your shower. That's the the common thought of, about innovation. But y- they have done something special at BioDesign, and it is a repeatable process, and it does provide structure, framework, so that you can. Do it in a way that you feel confident you're on the right path, I think, because it's such a hard path that you, a lot of times you question what you're doing. Yeah. And the other thing is, I think it's important
0: to know is when we started Surefire is that, and this to me was one of the most, the funnest part is Jim and I, we wrote out a business plan and to me, writing a business plan was writing like, like was like writing a grant. And we, he and I did a deep dive, deep, deep dive into mm-hmm everything out there about not only, uh, the clinical need, but we, you know, what, 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 what is the literature, current literature about all this? What, what does it say about non-target injury? What about, what is the solutions that people have? Then we looked at the the business concept. What is the you know the the market size? You know these are all again things that were in mm-hmm. the design book. So and did you I,
1: have you didn't have an invention yet, or this you're still working on the need, or you had some ideas? We had some ideas, the,
0: oh, yeah. Okay. But we wor- We first worked on the the need, and mm-hmm. then we once we had the the concept of the valve, then we mm-hmm. uh, expanded it. And I always tell people that if you have an idea, I think. It really is a good exercise to, to write out a business plan so, uh-huh. because that putting down into words on a paper, your thoughts, it really helps you go through the process, link, think that things, because too many times people are, have ideas and they just want to run with it. But if the, you know, the sitting down writing a, a business proposal really slows everything down and makes you think about the details, the nuances,
1: what is going to be needed, all these other things. That's a great idea. And it also tells you how much work it's going to be. Yeah, yeah uh, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So you can be honest with yourself.
0: Yeah, exactly. And, you know, it's in my friend, Kim Jenkins also said the same thing is whatever you think you write in your business plan is going to cost double the amount and double the
1: time. <laughs> yeah, just, right. You know, whatever you think, just double everything. Just add in the unknown X factor. Yeah. Times two. Exactly. So uh, you came up with the idea of, of the valve and was that a, a team effort, you and you said? Jim Chums actually came up with the idea of the valve. So gotcha.
0: this is sort of a, an approach where, again, the collaboration where Jim and I had such perfect complementary skill sets. Mm-hmm. Jim was really good about he was the biomedical engineer. He was uh, on the engineering side aspect. He understood, you know, the engineering, he understood uh, how to write patents. He understood, he actually understood the business side of it. I was uh, very comfortable on device development. I was comfortable on the the clinical need, obviously, and and writing scientific papers and doing research. So he and I both had really good complementary skill set. And so I said, Jim, we need to have a device that's going to create an integrate flow no matter what, because we can't have a situation we're trying to embolize because all you do is... If you create, if it creates sluggish flow, you're not going to, you need to have further uh, integrate flow. And mm-hmm. so he was the one said, well, let's do about. And I was like, wow, well, that, that can be hard, you know, mm-hmm.
1: it's, uh, in but, such small spaces.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. And,
1: but that's where, that's how it all, you know, sort of came together. Uh, that's great. So how'd you test proof of concept? When did you raise funding? How far in did you say, all right, we have something. Let's, let's pitch this to some investors. Did you go to angels or VC or, or grants? You know, you sort of like, as you know, with
0: startups, you have several parallel tracks running. You have basically your research track running R&D. You got the regulatory track running. You got basically the fundraising arm running. So you got, you basically you got to do everything and you, you know, especially when you don't have money. So, you know, Jim and I initially threw in money together to start the company.
1: Okay, you seeded basically your okay.
0: And then with me, I found obviously in Atlanta, a, a place here that does a, a animal research where we could do the proof of concept. I could, clearly I, I sort of, we, we set up a scientific advisory board, you know, all the small infrastructures you need to do first, which is basically corporate the company. We had, we had a little office in Boulder, Colorado, which was in a internet service provider, which was a little closet in an internet service provider. Older, and I would fly out there. Jim and I would work in there, and we'd write write the business plan together. Okay, and then basically it'd do all these other steps together. And then this is these are the days of you know we use Skype to sort of talk about things, and would go raise fundraise. We went to, you know, we went out to the Bay Area, Life Science Angels. We mm-hmm. pitched to them. We went to Manhattan, gave several pitches there. You know, we just sort of reached out to multiple things. I mean, a funny story is one time I remember at that time, my daughter, you know, was sort of in, in preschool. And there was one day, you know, and so we were living in this tiny apartment. We just moved to Atlanta and we were in this apartment. And Jim and I would do Skype calls all the time mm-hmm. to sort of coordinate everything else. And I remember one day I was going to San Francisco to meet with Jim and he and I were going to present to Life Science Angels. And I took my daughter to school. And I dropped her off on my flight. Pl- I thing, my flight was like 10 in the morning. Mm-hmm. And I dropped her off. My daughter walks up to the teacher and, and says, my daddy is flying to San Francisco with the man he just met on the internet.
1: <laughs> oh, I'm sure that went over well with the teacher. No phone calls, no PTA meetings after that. And you just like, and she
0: had never met you, but she just knew he was a man on the
1: internet. Oh, man. <laughs> Very smart girl. Yeah. start.
0: But anyway, so we did a lot of fundraising that way. Uh, we did the proof of concept of the animal study. where We basically went into the kidney of both swine and gave a standard microcatheter and then the Surefire device and just to show the non-target what it hit to So those are all the proof of concept we went. And then we probably our first initial investor was a guy named Norm Weldon. Who's in who's in Boulder at that time? He, mm-hmm. So, we, again, we pitched to Norm. Jim and I had, you know, we'd done so many at this point where we, you know we were on autopilot, and that I would start, and then Jim would start. And I remember we started one pitch with Norm was in the room, and his partner Karen Cassidy was in the room also. And about five minutes into the pitch, I mean, barely title slide,
1: mm-hmm.
0: barely into you know the clinical need. Mm-hmm. Norm pauses me, and he says, "I just want to let you know." I am not going to invest anything on this. But go ahead and go. Oh my like, gosh! And we're like, okay. I was like, so then but what uh, do you do? What do you do at that <laughs> point? I guess we'll keep going. Yeah, exactly. Keep pushing. And it's funny. It was supposed to be a, a forty-five minute meeting, mm-hmm. and then an hour and a half later, Norm is still there asking us questions. Karen is like, Norm, we got to go. Norm, we got to go. Yeah. And Norman ended. Up, he just wanted to see how we'd react. You know, if we would become belligerent or if unbelievable. Be, And, you know, Norm ended up being our first investor. Great, great guy. He was, he was, you know, he was a former CEO of Cordis. He was a, oh, wow. He was a tough guy. And he he just wanted to sort of push our buttons to see what it was like. And, but in the end, you know, Norm invested, but not only that, but Norm was an incredible advisor for me and Jim, especially for Jim, because Jim was a new CEO. Mm -hmm. You know, we had uh, devised up the company when Jim and I started where he would be the CEO and I was the CSO. And uh, Norm living in Boulder was great because Jim could reach out to him, and Norm then had a lot of network of contacts. So it's really, you know, that was very helpful from that standpoint. Having that,
1: yeah. So, Arvin, maybe you can tell us: that were was Surefire always successful from the beginning, or did you have any failures or any any trouble spots along oh, the way? There's always. <laughs> I know the answer to this question. Yeah,
0: Yeah, I mean, it wasn't like, you know, there there are always, there were always issues. I mean, but uh, I'll give you a highlight of a couple of really big challenges that Mm -hmm. occurred, which was some of these were funny in a sense. So at one point in 2011, we're sort of, we're in Miami, we're cranking away. We're starting to do, you know, the device prototyping, the device, you know, basically design freeze, everything else. And. We reached out to all the companies like Certex and at that point, Nordiod, Tyingum, the uh, catheter, will work on a catheter for anti-reflux, all this. And I remember Certex approached us and said, would you guys be able to do first in man study in May? And again, this was in February. Okay. And we're like, well, <laughs> at least he just said yes. Yeah. <laughs> And because certex Sir, uh, was an Australian based company and there was a mechanism available in Australia where if you have a sponsor, you can do a first in man study. Right. And so at this point, the engineering team, we all gear up to get it ready to sort of submit to FDA and get it design free So we barely got, and this was Memorial day, 2011. And I remember we said, okay, and that was the target date. So I basically flew to Australia for a four day trip to do a first in man And we got the device, you know, we got everything ready. And then basically at this point, I didn't really understand international issues with imports and export taxes, all that. But I go through several funny stories in Australia. I go through, I land, it's just me and I land in Sydney, Australia, and I'm going through customs. And then they say, you know, do you have anything of value? you know, the usual questions. I said, I have medical devices in there. And then they immediately start saying that there's going to be a tax based on the valuation of the company and the devices, you know, it was just, it was crazy. Wow. It's going to be like, you know, so if I like to backtrack quickly, <laughs> just no, say, not a medical device. This is research not, <laughs> purposes only. Yeah. These are re- exactly. Research purposes. So anyway, so we go and I go to St. Vincent's hospital and where Lawrence Bester is a residential radiologist, works closely with Sortex has offered to do the first in man and Dave Liu in Vancouver at that point is also was the medical director for Sirtex. And I did not know Dave at that point. And Dave flew from Vancouver to Sydney because he heard about Surefire and he was interested to see how it worked. And so, and again, Dave is an interventional radiologist, but I did not know him before that point. So that's when I first met Dave and Dave and I just clicked. He's just, he's an incredible person, Mm -hmm. extremely bright very smart. And again, like one of these people that gives you energy. And so anyway, we go to do the first in man. Here I am jet lag, 10 in the morning. We go in. Lawrence Besser, I said, let's do the first and man in a planning angiogram. So let's put the device in a, just a standard diagnostic angiogram. You're not going to do anything. I just want to just get some pretty pictures.
1: And this is it, it, just to be clear, this is the anti-reflux catheter. This is what, yeah, you're, uh, what you're using but, it for. Yeah, the early prototype. To prevent non-target embolization. Exactly. Okay.
0: And so we get, I gave him the, you know, it was all packaged, sterile, everything all good, so we, And then, you know, in Europe and Australia, it's a lot different. And he's, you know, they're like, you want to come in scrub? You can come in. <laughs> I was like, like, I've been scrubbing since I was 13 years old. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but I said, no, I'll just sit back, Lawrence, you know, just too many, you know, conflicts here. I just want to just let you do it. And then I'll just sort of. So we give him the device and he puts it, you know, it's a, he's going to do an s m a angiogram. He's just going to do, put the device in, the Surefire device and do an angiogram. At this point, Jim is in Colorado. I'm sort of calling him intermittently from Australia. You know, it's probably like two in the morning where he was 10 in the morning in Australian time. And, and you know, he's nervous, everyone's nervous. How's this going to go? What's going to happen? You know, Dave Lou's there, you know, very curious to see uh, what's going to happen. And then also David K, Chief's uh, Medical Officer for Texas there. So he gets the device. He puts it in. And Lawrence, I remember, I, to his face, I remember, to this, his face, he looks at me and he says, I can't see it.
1: Oh, my gosh. Like, what? It's radiolucent. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> oh, no.
0: It was complete.
1: There's no well, markers.
0: Well, Exactly. What happened is I had done all this animal studies in swine. Oh. Later, you know. I forget or just they're very narrow yeah very narrow you know are and you could see every detail with the spine, and then you put it in a human being with you know it disappears when ate it disappears completely oh my gosh and so we had to like and then so he's like that's okay as long as you think it works." i was like well it works so we did some contrast runs you could see the negative defect of it right and then then he goes all right that's fine. we'll do it on the next case uh and i the next case is, it was a case where basically he had tried, he had coiled the GDA and then part of the coil had extended out into the right hepatic artery mm-hmm. and was basically partially occlusive. He goes, I want to use it in this artery now. And I'm like, oh boy. Oh, <laughs> But, you know, and again, I was like, here we go. We have a partially loose coil. I'm going to be uh, with this catheter in there. Not how you wanted to start <laughs> the clean scenario. But it worked well there. It Work great in the sense it' functional, we just couldn't see it. And then, so we immediately we just had to add markers, you know, to, to visualize it, extra, you know, radio, markers. But anyway, so those
1: are so you know, they're just things little things, little things that you have to think about when you're innovating. I mean, they become critical, but at the time, you know, it's just another small detail. God, that's that's crazy. So but it was oh. also, you know, I think the other thing which and you probably also
0: noticed this, but the whole surefire path with the with the process we had done, it's, it's also the people you meet, you know, it's obviously me and Jim are really good friends, Norm Weldon, the CEO. I got to meet, you know, all these people around the world that were using the device and trying to get experience with the Dave Liu is a good friend of mine. Now, he and I are close collaborators on, on other papers and projects. So, It's just, that's the part of the thing I really enjoy about this whole startup process is the people you get to meet and collaborate with because they're very like-minded. They want to do stuff. They want to, you know, they're willing
1: to, you know, push the envelope in ideas. It's uh, I cannot agree more. I say that's the one thing so far. I mean, you've you've achieved success. So we're we're still working on our our stuff on our end. But the my co-founder and I, I mean, the relationship you develop going through these trials and tribulations is by far the most rewarding part, at least so far. So I I totally agree. Yeah. And you have to find the people
0: you really have to be careful who you work with, because, you know, if you can't get along with some, uh, someone like this, because something like a startup is so intense. It is. So much of a time commitment. Uh, you really have to make sure. And actually, it's funny, when Jim and I first met, we actually did it did like, basically, we got to know each other, make sure we could get along with each other. And it just turned out he and I are very like-minded in our approach to things and very mm-hmm. laid back. So it was, it was good. It was a good fit.
1: Yeah, it's not always going to be a perfect fit. I think that that is just clear from the beginning, and everybody goes through instances where you just have to say, "Hey, this this isn't working out." That's also a very important part of a, of a startup and making sure that you continue making progress. So, tell me, Surefire is successful. You guys uh, have done very well. You've you've commercialized and and it's out there. Uh, Surefire, where is it now? How do you where is it? So it's now it's
0: uh, Trisalus. It's becoming, you know, we've, Jim and I moved from anti-reflux to really trying to improve the device in several ways. First is it was not easy to use. So we really try to streamline how well it can be utilized with the workflow. Mm -hmm. We changed that aspect of it. And we actually started moving towards trying to do pressure-directed therapy in the sense that we want to try to modulate control, improve therapy, more penetration into tumors itself. Mm-hmm. And that being said, is it's gone along that we he and I also started working on the pancreas and uh, doing pressure direct therapy for the pancreas. Mm-hmm. And it, so along those lines, the company has moved. So Jim and I both have left Surefire. Trisalus is now moving in those kind of directions: mm-hmm. of pancreas pressure directed therapy, and we are also working on some immu- some um, pharmaceutical therapies alongside of it. So it's sort of now it's on it's a ship
1: on its own now. Got it. You know, that's, fa- that's fantastic, I think. that stepped off, but it's been an incredible journey. That's unbelievable. Now, anything else in the pipeline for you? Uh, anything you're working on?
0: You know, I'm at that stage st- right now where I'm, I've am i moved off from trisalis, actually in the stage of now going back to trying to find, working on uh, clinical needs and working on a couple of ideas. I still am very, very interested in the pancreas and mm-hmm. pancreatic cancer, so...
1: Looking along those lines and trying—that's a rich space to look into, and yes, exactly. definitely lots of needs there. That's the fun part to me is getting into the needs. Yeah, uh, the possibilities are endless when you're in that phase.
0: And I go through this, and I'm and I used I used to do this. I'm going to start doing this regularly. But I used to take a day off, just completely detached from the grid, and just read all day in of a certain topic, and just PubMed. You're just just cruising research, and, research, research, research. Yeah, got it. PubMed. Anything, Um, right? I found all kinds of interesting, If you just type in pancreatic cancer on Twitter, for example, Mm -hmm. you see all kinds of things that people are working on. So that leads me to different things, but sometimes I've done that and I'm probably gonna do that again over like a weekend where I just sort of do a deep dive and see what's going on, where where people are. And then there's, you know, looking at other startups and Mm -hmm. just get ideas on that. So that's the, the situation I'm
1: in right now. That's great. You know, you mentioned social media. I've always been interested to see if social media could be used to leverage to find clinical needs because it's really, you can tap into both the patient population, maybe patients who feel left behind, you know, and then also physicians, other innovators. That's a very rich platform to to dig into. I think that's very interesting that you mentioned that.
0: Yeah, it's funny because if you just type in anything on, I tend to use Twitter. I have not Mm -hmm. used Instagram or Facebook or anything else, but Mm -hmm. Seems like Twitter has more of a medical uh, bent on it in some of the areas. And so when you type in certain topics, I'm always surprised about papers that come up. And I think, you know, we should also on the other side is we should also try to promote more papers we publish on Twitter to sort of further, you know, as an outreach because sort of helps, you know, let anyone know what's going on in that space. So
1: that's great. I think that's a great place to leave it. So Arvin, thank you so much. That was a pleasure. I really enjoyed chatting with you and, and hearing your story. It's inspiring for sure. And a lot of good stories, a lot of good advice in there. Well,
0: thanks a lot, Brian. I'm very impressed with what you, Aaron and Kieran have done with uh, Backtable. It's just an incredible organization. So congratulations to all three of you. And uh, thank you for the time to uh, chat with you guys.